Final word, cricket podcast with me, Adam Collins, and him, Jeff Lemon. Plenty to get through, as always, on the show. But before we go to that, Jeff, we should mention the fact that we're nearing the live shows, the first of which is in Melbourne next Monday at the Mission to Seafarers Club in the city. Tickets have been selling consistently, but there's still a chance to get your hands on a couple if you want to be with us on Monday in what I'm sure will be a really fun and interesting show with Dirk Nannis, a former Australian and Netherlands international. Yeah, that's right. We're really, really pleased to get Dirk on the show and glad that he was um, was game to take it on. He was like, oh, okay, what kind, of, what kind of thing is this? But he's decided to have a bit of an adventure with us, um, as have a couple of hundred odd people. So it's going to be squeezy down there at the mission, but there are a few tickets left. So um, jump on and, and grab one of those. You can go to Final Word Cricket is the website and um, we'll probably be about a seven in the evening kickoff. Um, there's a the sort of RSL style bar down there at the mission. There'll be a few genuine sailors knocking about at the show as well. So if you want to meet a sailor, now's your chance. Um, <laughs> or if you just want to come and listen to us uh, chat varying degrees of nonsense for a couple of hours, then you can do that as well. Yeah, we've said seven o'clock on the ticket, but I think realistically it'll probably be half seven or quarter to eight before we actually take our place on the stage. So uh, don't get too seven worried. Seven o'clock is rushing. just to get your spot at the bar, really. Yeah, seven o'clock exactly. is just get in, get get your get your round in, find your seat, do all the rest of it, and then um, we'll, we'll be on a little bit later. So that's the Melbourne show, 18th of November, and the Adelaide show the following week on the 27th of November. So that's two days before the Pakistan-Australia test match in the city of churches with Jason Gillespie who of course is an Adelaide native South Australian champion and Jim Maxwell who we had on the on the live circuit with us in England uh, through the northern summer and well fair to say it was a rollicking ride with him so uh, be sure to, to jump on <laughs> finalwearcricket.com uh, join us in Melbourne or Adelaide it's going to be tons of fun I can guarantee we won't be putting the shows on the podcast feed uh, so if you want to um, on the basis that they, they are probably not not quite um, the sort of shows that you want to um, put out more broadly than those who are in the room. It's a, it's an intimate Chatham House kind of affair. So um, be with us on, on Monday if you're in <laughs> Melbourne or or in Adelaide on the 27th, finalwordcricket.com. Uh, Jeff, sort of getting into the, the our, um, our, our schedule for today, we're going to have a quick conversation about a lot of important issues before uh, getting into an interview, which we were planning on doing throughout the English summer. Didn't get around to it. In a way, it might have been a good thing that we gave it a chance to breathe and um, a, a chance to have a broader discussion about mental health issues in cricket given it's been such a pertinent topic uh, in recent times for Australian players but Rob Smythe who's a a senior cricket writer at at the Guardian one of the most interesting writers uh, doing the round someone we work with on, on the Guardian live blog uh, in the England summer and, and he's written the autobiography of Robin Smith the former England player who has been incredibly open with his struggles uh, off the field after playing and I think yeah it's a timely conversation and, and one we really enjoyed Yeah well the timeliness of particularly events around Australian cricket the last mm. couple of weeks um, Glenn Maxwell we mentioned in the previous show taking a, a mental health break from the game but um, sort of in the interim really we've had Nick Maddinson count himself out from the Australia A game that was really a sort of audition match for a test spot and then Will Pukowski who played in that match um, count himself out from the possibility of test selection we, we don't know whether he would have been picked but there was there was a fair bit of mail suggesting he would have been um, mm. you know he'd been seen having some very 
um, upbeat chats with Justin Langer and so on uh, around the, the Perth Stadium at that match. But mm. So I, I don't know whether he was heading off the likelihood of being picked and deciding he wasn't ready for it. Um, but if he did, that's a pretty massive call to make as a young player to say, no, don't pick me for my first test match. Um, and, you know, he, he may not have been... He, he may have been going to narrowly miss out, but either way, he um, took himself off the table, as it were. So, you know, three pretty prominent players with um, with the, the chance to represent the national side um, taking themselves out of selection, which is something that would have been, well, that, that, that was unheard of up until this last week, I reckon, in Australian cricket. Yeah, so we're recording this edition of the show about two and a half hours after the test squad's been named. And yeah, I suppose the fact that uh, we found out this morning that Pekofsky wouldn't be in consideration uh, and Maddinson, as you say, essentially ruled himself out by virtue of not playing for Australia A or Victoria uh, this week meant that there were too fewer names on the chart. Um, whether Pekofsky would have played or not is uh, is kind of neither here nor there, I suppose, at the moment because the main um, discussion point around both players and Maxwell as well is that I think the health... The healthiness, I suppose, or that's probably the wrong word, the, the positive development that they were all able to self-report. Um, yes, this is a, a very serious issue uh, that needs to be monitored carefully, and we spoke about that on the show last week, but the one consistent piece of information that seems to be filtering through, uh, whether it's from Cricket Australia or perhaps more importantly from former players, is that the reporting regime is far more sophisticated than it once was, which means that players do feel they can have that conversation with decision makers without it necessarily having an adverse effect on their selection possibility into the future. And not the first time for Pukowski either. There was earlier this year the Canberra Test match when he was in the squad up in Brisbane and then um, ruled himself out of that squad, reasoning that he wasn't mentally up to it at the time. Yeah, and and earlier last year in the Sheffield Shield season as well, after a big double ton to start, the campaign he took some time away from the game too so he's shown a willingness to to do this uh and look i've said it before on on the show i think i did the first sort of long form interview with him back in 2016 i think it was when he made uh that truckload of runs for the victorian under 19s team it must have been at the national carnival when he made four tons in five days or whatever it was and he was you know uh, all the rage for a while there uh, at the start of his um at the start of his victorian journey i suppose uh, and Look, he's the—he's a wonderful young man. He's one of the most... At the time, he was I couldn't believe how impressive he was for an 18-year-old. I mean, I, I thought about the way I was at 18 and thought about the way he was conducting himself. And um, and he, he really did seem like the sort of person who, um, who, uh, who did have everything uh, heading in the right direction. And, and he does. There's no question of that. His, his form on the field suggests accordingly. But um, those half a dozen concussions he's experienced along the way, uh, the intersection between that and the pressure he felt off the field, it, it feels like when he eventually gets there, um, he's got the potential to have a, a long and illustrious Australian career. But I mean, more power to him for having the ability to say that this isn't the right time for him at the moment to be able to step away from the game because, yeah, as I mentioned before, a host of former players have said that this would have been unheard of uh, in a previous generation. I think I mentioned last week Mike Hussey uh, when talking to him when Glenn Maxwell um, withdrew from the T20 squad. Only five years ago, Hussey was playing for Australia and he said this this couldn't have happened then. So I, I saw Virat Kohli, Jeff. I'm not sure if you caught up with the Indian captain's comments overnight, but he, he was, uh, you know, he, he, he was very... 
Um, he was very complimentary of Glenn Maxwell, who, of course, they know each other well from the circuit and from, from the T20 cricket they play in the IPL and, and so forth. About, and, he, and he talked about his own experience in 2014 in England and how he wasn't right to be playing international cricket at that time, but he didn't quite know how to handle it. So he's, he's seeing what's happening in Australia at the moment as a, as a positive development as well. So there are two parts to this, because obviously it's very sad that these guys aren't able to um, play or be eligible to play for Australia next week from a cricket perspective, but I think we, we've got to take a longer lens on this. There are so many players who start a test career when they're young and they're not really ready for it and maybe it does them more harm than good you know they want to jump at that first opportunity but it does them some damage in the long run Um, someone like Matthew Renshaw who's struggled with his cricket really since being pushed out of that test side you know Cameron Bancroft an obvious example who's come back into the test squad this week and uh, we should probably get onto that group of players who've been selected for the first test in Brisbane it's been it's been an interesting day on the internet Adam. Oh it has I mean I, I think the test squad announcement day on Twitter is just about my favourite now there are a lot of um points on the social media calendar where you can kind of predict what's going to happen but uh, every time the test squad's named uh, it does provoke a, a certain kind of response from the certain kind of types of people uh, and the fact that Cameron Bancroft's name was in the mix today he's clearly going to be the spare batsman I don't I don't think I've seen such uproar about someone being the spare batsman before I, I kind of get it when it was the Ashes series um, when Bancroft was appointed as the opener uh, basically the first available opportunity after his ban I think he might have been eligible to have played in, in the Sri Lanka team earlier this year but really his first real chance to come back he did alongside Smith and, and Warner and he lasted two tests and was punted I thought prematurely based on what we knew of um, Joffre Archer and his success against left-handers which uh, was borne out in his success uh, against Marcus Harris in the back end of, of the of the Ashes series but um, Bancroft does get a chance and I suppose the the commentary from Trevor Hones was what was the lightning rod this time he he said that uh, Bancroft has improved uh, since uh, as a player since uh, he was dropped after Lords and uh, the run of low scores for, for Western Australia and, and for Australia A this week wouldn't necessarily be in keeping with that but um, like I've said before Jeff on the show I mean it, selectors are, are paid to do more than just look at scores I suppose and um, I'm not saying that it isn't a poor choice of words it clearly is it was clearly going to be subject to this kind of scrutiny but uh, uh, yeah I, I think that um, you know it's not as though there was anyone else absolutely commanding a spot uh, Marcus Harris is unlucky on the basis that he did make a century for Victoria and another 70 odd in round two but um, he didn't make runs for Australia A and, and as they said themselves they're looking for a sort of a, a right hand left hand which is why Joe Burns has kind of jumped over both of them and, and they said of Burns as you did and as I did Jeff uh, before Birmingham that, that Burns truly was the unlucky man in the middle of the year looking at his test record and, and now he gets a chance to start the summer at the top of the list alongside David Warner Yeah literally everything that was said in the release about Joe Burns could equally have been said about him in July yeah. ahead of the Ashes series over in England you know that good good record in test cricket um, you know the right hand left combination all the rest of it so he's being brought in you know despite not really having commanded first class cricket so far this season he didn't make any runs in the tour match either so neither neither did Harris um, so the, they were starting at level pegging there I suppose but Harris probably paying for just how ineffective he was across those final three Ashes tests and he's had a habit of you know making a lot of first class runs but hasn't done it in the opportunities that he's had so far at test level so that's not a a bad omission for mine um, but it's a 
slightly odd time to bring Burns back, given it's not like he was churning out runs either. Bancroft, I suppose what Bancroft did in the middle order in that Australia A game was what convinced them that he could be a utility player because he can open if need be or he can bat in the middle, um, as he showed. When Australia A were collapsing, they were, what, five for... 50-odd against uh, Pakistan. They mm. probably would have been bowled out for a, under 100, if not for his 49 that he made, mostly with the lower order. So that showed uh, that sort of adaptability and resilience that they like. And I thought Bancroft was a bit unlucky to be dropped after two tests during the Ashes when you know he was managing to occupy the crease for a while, even if he wasn't making big scores. So he's he's got that opportunity. I can see why you could satirise it but I don't think it's a terrible call given um, as you said the, the the other candidates have ruled themselves out Madison Pekofsky might have been um, candidates for that middle order spot but they're not there yeah, and Usman Khawaja has been overlooked as well. Probably the biggest story in all of this is that Khawaja, who's been a senior player at home for, what, four summers on the bounce, has been left out altogether. So uh, interestingly, though, yeah. they, they've talked about Bancroft, just to kind of finish the thread on him, as a utility, but also someone who could step in as a concussion sub. So, I mean, it's interesting that now selections, uh, they have to take this into consideration on mm. the basis of what we saw in England, which... Um, seems like a sound insurance policy, as you say, given that he did bat in the middle order and uh, and has opened you know, whenever he's played test cricket, even though his, his runs uh, have not been uh, anywhere near what they should have been this year. I think Burns has averaged 40-odd, and that does carry some weight, given the bulk of those games so far have been at the Gabba, where the, you know where the track has been, um, you know, uh, fairly uh, fairly spicy, uh, uh, dare I say. Uh, so the um, so that's why he's you know basically jumps the queue if there was a queue. I don't think that's fair to say he's jumped the queue, but he's jumped over the two guys who were who were doing the job in England. Uh, so that that will be a return to Burns and Warner, which is where they were four years ago. So when they got back from England in 2015, Joe Burns uh, returned to the Test side, uh, batting with Warner. Burns made his uh, maiden test century there he had a good summer he made three hundreds across that those i think it would have been if you include the new zealand test eight tests uh, between november and february and yeah look i guess they've got five tests here and it's not as important the summer as others on the basis that um they, they do whether they whether we whether we um whether they should or they shouldn't uh, tests against england tests against india and tests against south africa do mean more uh, as far as uh, australian cricket cycles are concerned and they probably see this as a good summer to see whether burns can be a long-term prospect and i think the other in a bancroft versus kawaja or harris situation is that bancroft gives you a short leg where yep. the, the other two don't add a huge amount of value in the field um you know they're probably both slightly ropey backward points but Bancroft, when you've got Nathan Lyon and Mitchell Stark in the team, you probably want someone who can go in under the helmet and take good catches and, and get hit and not be afraid of it. So Bancroft gives you that option in the 11. He could come on and do that job as a subfielder as well. So yep. there's a bit of a broader utility to having him in the team, perhaps. Um, so Travis Head was the the other question mark, I suppose. He's made it, uh, kept his spot in the middle order as technically a, a vice captain of the team. Um, Sean Marsh didn't get his, hasn't got his call up, but there's still time. There's still yeah. there's still five tests ahead of us, and anything could happen between now and uh, the New Year's test at the SCG. So um, Travis Head will be in there. You'd imagine that Wade will keep his spot at six, um, yep. and then they've got five fast bowlers to squeeze into three because Lyon will definitely play. So it's the the big four from the Ashes plus Michael Nisa who's um, continued to do nothing wrong. Yeah, uh, well, look, to, to, just to, to cover off on, on the head-Marsh conversation, on form you pick Marsh, wouldn't you? But it, it kind of comes back to this point about the, the longer term uh, that, they're, that they're seeing Travis Head as a potential leader of this side. And 
He made 100 last week. Uh, he wasn't in the final test in England. Of course, he was dropped. He was left out for Mitchell Marsh, who's unavailable with that broken hand. A terrible time, really, when you think about it on reflection. Mitchell Marsh should be feeling quite silly, wouldn't he? Um, ruling himself out when, um, had he made runs at shield level, it would have been quite easy to have retained him in the 11, I suppose. But that wasn't to be after that brain explosion uh, in the opening round of the season. Uh, so, yeah, Travis Head gets that chance. He will be the vice-captain. Uh, with Pat Cummins and as you say Matthew Wade there's no doubting uh, his place in the team at 100 a couple of weeks ago 89 not out I think it was uh, during this current round so he has earned that chance after two tons during the Ashes um, the five fast bowlers into three so Pattinson keeps his spot as part of the I guess the the, the awesome foursome or that quartet um, that, that were that were put together uh, across the, the northern summer and Michael Nisa is the fifth bowler like fair play Nisa I mean I watched him bowl a fair bit on day one of the tour game, and I mean to beat the bat as often as he did. Early breakthrough, uh, it, you know, it, it's hard to see um, how he's going to force his way into the opening eleven of the Test summer. But gee, it, it wouldn't be a bad shout if they did pick him. I saw that Stark and Hazelwood uh, took a truckload of fourth innings wickets, uh, and, and of course Stark and Hazelwood have been in great nick so far this summer. Pat Cummins picks himself, but um, Nisa is right there, isn't he? He, he? He's deserved his chance to get a, get an opportunity at some point through the summer. If they do maintain uh, the squad rotation policy that they had in England, then you'd expect he'll get that chance sooner rather than later. Well, it was a, a tough assignment for that uh, Australia A bowling attack because, you know, Riley Meredith jumping Jai Richardson yeah. and Nisa all, all actually looked really good. They were mm. they were bowling good pace over in Perth. They were um, they were accurate. They looked decent and yet the Pakistanis took them apart. Um, I watched a, a fair chunk of that partnership between Babar Azam and Asad Shafiq and, you know, two lovely stroke makers but both of them looked so comfortable and, and so confident with that the, the quicker Australian pitches and the value for shots through the field and they seem to be really enjoying themselves that's the probably the bit the bit of the conversation that we weren't having a week ago that we, we saw Pakistan underperform in the T20s and they haven't had the best 12 months and we're thinking well you know they'll come here two test matches in November Australia on the back of a, a pretty good uh, ashes they'll they'll get towed up but I'll tell you what, Barbara's arm and Asad Shafiq is often the barometer of that side, and they're fast bowling. Forget about the batting for a moment. They're fast bowling. I mean, Shaheen Afridi bowls 150, swings it both ways, six foot six. He's pretty good at cricket. Um, we've seen now that he's now made the transition from white ball to red ball. Looked fantastic. Uh, the, the new fellow who, who's came in, Nassim Shah, 16 years old, um, he was rapid. Last night, that beautiful slingy bowling action as well, almost a, a carbon copy of uh, Wakar Yunus at the start of his career. Uh, and then you've got Imran Khan, who, um, Jeff, you and I remember fondly from the 2014 Australia-Pakistan test matches with the tips in his hair and all the rest of it, with that distinctive front-on action as well. Um, he, he was in the wickets in the first innings, or sorry, the second innings. No, no, the first innings, wasn't it, when he, when he ran a yep. mark and took Pfeiffer. So they've got, they've got a formidable attack. Well, they, they steamrolled Australia, eh? They, they embarrassed them. You know, it was supposed to to be this big bat-off for a spot in the test team and nobody made any runs um, who, who was vying for a spot. So that was, you know, that, that's always the unknown part with Pakistan, I suppose, that uh, so many times they've flattered to deceive. They've come to these shores with some really good-looking teams, um, you know, a couple of really stylish batsmen, a good bowling, fast bowling attack, some useful spinners, and then they still get pogoed in the test matches. So I'm not going to hold out great hopes um, because it just something seems to happen when, when it's time for Test Match Cricket but you, 
if it if it works, you know, if this team can put up a fight, then it's it's going to be something to watch. Well, we saw it three years ago. They came to Australia. I think they were the number one test team in the world at that point when they arrived to Brisbane and for that day-night test match. And we saw Muhammad Amir leading the attack. Wahab Rehaz, who'd been quite effective in Australia before. And we thought, well, they've got the they've got the skills to, to bowl Australia out a couple of times a test match. And it was anything but. There were bulk scores made by the home side. So, But still, with, with Australia's batting woes as they've been uh, over the last couple of years, you, you think they're right in the contest. So it should make for a, a very interesting uh, test series, which starts in Brisbane uh, on the 21st of November. The, the, to, to round off on the Shield cricket that was played over the last couple of days, Alex Dolan, not someone who we've been uh, talking too much about in the last couple of years, Jeff, but uh, he is a stylish player. He did play about half a dozen test matches four or five years ago. He made 170 in the first dig against South Australia, 116 rather in the second innings as part of that fourth innings chase, which is still going on uh, at the moment at Adelaide Oval. Tasmania in a pretty good position as we record. So Doolan, certainly not in the chat, but fair play to him. Twin tons in Sheffield Shield cricket. Doesn't happen that often. Jake Fraser-McGurk, bit of excitement. Oh. around the the youngster who came in. I like the fact that um, so normally anyone in a sporting context whose nickname is Rooster, you would cringe, but when someone's last name is McGurk, McGurk. Um, <laughs> it's actually a pretty good moniker. So that, that, that's apparently what he's called around I, I was, uh, his um, club, but, but he played a few decent shots. Oh, too right. I, I, I went in there yesterday to the G for the, the, uh, the 100 days until the women's World T20 uh, was being uh, done at the G. We, we learnt that Katy Perry is going to be the, the pre-game at the final where they're trying to, to sell out the cricket ground, which um, that's going to help. It's an exclusive act, and that's a bit of a segue here, but um, Katy Perry is, um, well, no one has more Twitter followers, and I think she's got, combined between Twitter and Instagram, 200 million people who are watching what she does, and she was trying to hawk tickets to the cricket yesterday on her on forums, so, I mean, you know, fair play to her, so she'll be out doing one concert and one concert only, it's at the MCG, when they're trying to break that, that world record from the, the Women's World Cup football final in 1999, which is 90,100 85 when America sort of famously won that penalty shootout. Um, quite an iconic uh, image there. So I was at the ground anyway, so I thought I'll stick around and watch the 17-year-old bat. Glad I did. His first boundary, I mean, if you don't mind, like um, leaping onto a pull shot off the front foot through mid-wicket for four. He's a compulsive hooker. Um, he was getting sledged relentlessly. Didn't say a word back to the Queenslanders. 17 years old. I think it's the, the youngest Shield debut for since... Uh, did I read Cameron White was, was the youngest before him? Something like that, or maybe the, the youngest to make a half century. Whatever it was, it, 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 what, an, what a great opportunity for him with the international players largely away from Shield Cricket this week to, to come in and immediately make an impression on the G. Uh, Smith, Steve Smith made another 100, he, just as he does. He did, did what he did in the T20 series when he was you know cruising along in a strike rate of 140 or something and then made his slowest ever first-class ton for New South Wales in the Whites as well and, and then got out trying to uh, uppercut a ball over the keeper who was standing up to the stumps So and, and reckoned he didn't hit it and then got done for descent walking off. So it's all been happening. Yeah, you've got to love it, don't you? He, 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 you know, at this stage of Smith's career... Um, banking a first-class ton is, is almost expected. And, and as soon as he got out, as you say, powers of concentration. What was it, something like he made 19 runs in his first 100 balls in contrast to what he was doing uh, last week in T20 cricket. So uh, no issues with Smith, but he has lost however much percent of his uh, match fee. It can't be that much when you think about it, whatever. 25% of what he's earning to play for New South Wales this week probably isn't that much money. But um, all the same, um, do better, Steve. Don't yell at the umpires. You know better than to do that. Um, and I think I mentioned before that Stark and Hazelwood took seven between them in the second dig. So, uh, you know, when it comes to the quicks, 
Hazelwood's playing, Cummins is playing, and I can't really imagine a scenario where Stark isn't, although it must be said that Pattinson worked over Labashane in the second dig at the MCG and bowled fast, so uh, Pattinson's at least in the conversation probably for one of those two test matches if they want to go with three right armours, but I guess in all probability they'll, they'll go with Stark at home. Yeah, variation, the left arm, Stark at the Gabba, um, often likes bowling up there, so I can't see an equation really where they, they wouldn't go with that usual, you know, that's the, the default setting really for Australian tests at the moment. A couple of things to cover off on before we move uh, the conversation on. Uh, one, uh, Will Sutherland, uh, son of James, uh, brother of Annabelle, uh, a wicket with his uh, fifth ball in first class cricket and taken by um, Fraser McGurk at point. So one to watch Sir Will Sutherland. Um, what do they call him? They, they have some nickname for him like the General or the Major or something like that. He's a, a, a forceful character um, already around state cricket. So keep an eye on him. Um, Mitchell Swepson took a hat-trick. Uh, he's been on a couple of Australian test tours in the last two years. I thought it was really impressive that he held his nerve yesterday. He bowled a really good first spell and then Hanscom went after him with Fraser McGurk just after lunch. They hit him for three sixes over long on, but he kept it together. Um, took three wickets towards the back end of course me being me and having a, a bit of a history for missing hat tricks I left 10 minutes before he took um, uh, three and three uh, but uh, well done Mitch Swepson he can't be far away in terms of uh, um, that, that, that trip to Bangladesh in the middle of next year they'll need a second spinner Agar didn't take a wicket in the first innings this week for WA so you think that Swepson being the, the I guess the, the ranking wrist spinner in red ball cricket he might get another opportunity uh, and who else am I missing here oh, but well, just to say that um, Peter Hanscom looked pretty good yesterday for 92. He got a dodgy LBW decision. He wasn't out. Uh, Peter Siddle bowled really nicely in both innings. Uh, probably for both Victorians, too little, too late. I know that Siddle was coming from a little ways back, having been injured, and Hanscom hasn't made many runs with the exception of the half-century last week. So he wasn't really being talked about for Australia A or anything like that. But, uh, um, yeah, they're, they're both in and around, I guess, uh, conversations without um, pushing their way into the final 14. Well, there's just not a huge amount of test cricket over the next 12 months. So basically, if you haven't taken your opportunity by now, then um, there's unlikely to be another one. Should we do a little bit of Nerd Pledge before we move on? I think we should. Let's do it. Let's do it. Nerd Pledge. Nerd yeah. Pledge, the game that we play with Petrol. With Petrol? Petrol. With Petrols. <laughs> the name Petrols, they're kind of seabird. The game that we play with seabirds on our patron page uh, in which people who want to pledge support to the podcast, send us an amount of dollars and cents that equates to a cricketing number. Does that make sense? And then we have to work out what it is. Uh, Coming up first on the show, we'll just do a couple here nice and quickly, from Malt-O-Milk, which sounds like a beverage that you and I would purchase Mm. on a long road trip, but uh, is in fact a patron supporter who's come through with a pledge of $2.43. 243, does this number mean anything to you in a cricket sense? Adam? I missed you last week, Jeff. I was on the road with my girlfriend, Rach, uh, driving from somewhere to somewhere in Tasmania, and I, I found a carton of lime milk, and I thought, if you and I were on the road together, you'd be guzzling that bad boy in a matter of seconds. Rach, on the other hand, more discerning, said, you guys are freaks. Why do you drink this shit? What's wrong with Australia? All reasonable. Yep. very reasonable. Yep. I'm totally fair. I, there's <laughs> nothing I can argue with in that. But um, but when I, I I reckon if you you know if you go into people's um, messenger chats and then you open up the media tab, um, probably in a lot of people's chats that would be a risky move, um, and, and there'd, there'd be some dicey material there. But between you and I, I reckon it's about 
30% probably just pictures of various flavoured milks that, that one or other of us has found on our travels. I can I'm guarantee... Like, Check it out. There's a cinnamon donut flavoured <laughs> milk and I am drinking it. That, that, I, I can guarantee in the live show next week we'll have with us uh, some flavoured milk on stage. If, if you come along, we'll, we'll, buy you a, we'll buy you a Big M or something like that. That's still the, the public policy change that I want to see. If one day uh, I am the King of Victoria, I can guarantee we'll have some sort of Big M Friday. Um, Dylan yeah. Leach, patron of uh, The Final Word, has been pushing for this as well. So one day... One day. Um, so two, Do you four, remember, three. Adam? Adam, were you there? I, I'm not sure if you were there the year, um, the the India series of 2014, 15. Yes, um, I was there. Were you at the Adelaide Test? I was. Year? I was indeed. Because that year in the press box, they had pure flavored milks in the fridge, like just just you know, help yourself, all you can, oh. all you can drink. Um, the strawberries, the double chocolates, the, the there was some sort of vanilla malt type deal. Um, and and it was yeah just 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 go nuts and I reckon I went through about seven a day. The last time I remember they gave free milk out at the cricket in my uh, going because that was the year before I was living in the press box with you. I was sitting on sitting in the members that week having all you can drink beer probably. Uh, it was um, the two thousand and three two thousand and four Sheffield Shield final when it was uh, when it was um, owned and operated by the Pure Milk Company and they gave out unlimited milk at the Shield final and we took full advantage of that. Um, yeah, real, real, you know, um, we're really pushing the boat out there, drinking litres of milk while we were scoring every ball of that final. That's why, again, as I said before, why I was so popular. Um, just doing some weights, just doing that like four gallons of milk a day or whatever yeah. it is, like um, from some weightlifting forum. That's it. That's the way to do it. So 243 is the number we've got on the on the books. Yep. Uh, well, I, 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 know, I know of one 243, which might... And mm. tying quite nicely to our earlier chat. That's what Wilbukowski made uh, last year, last at the start of the Sheffield ah. Shield season, uh, when he made two four three against WA at the Wacker, and really announced yep. himself and got himself on 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 the map as far as international selection was concerned. So um, Wilbukowski, of course, not featuring uh, in uh, Australian colours anytime soon, but does feature in their pledge. I'm going to hope that it's two four three Wilbukowski. Yeah, that's not a bad shout. I was thinking, because I reckon at the time that Malt O'Melk put this one through, it would still have been Virat Kohli's highest test score. Um, he's, oh, yeah. He, he topped it a few weeks ago against South Africa with a 252, but our nerd pledge um, backlog goes back a while. So there was this odd thing where Kohli had made half a dozen double centuries, but the highest was 243. Um, where, where he has got to go on with it, mate. you got to go on with it. Yeah, got to go on with it, VK. Um, Shows so a fucking discipline. That could be it as well. Alistair Cook made a two forty three two. His oh, yes. um, West that, in that day nighter, wasn't it? That, yep, that West that, Indies um, game they at, played at Leeds or whatever it was. There was Birmingham. I was there. Oh, for Birmingham. That. Yeah. I should have remembered that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, the, um, the, the terrible, terrible decision to play day-night cricket in England where it, it doesn't get dark till about 11pm and it's freezing at night. And England bowled out West Indies twice in a day to finish yep. it. I'm quickly looking at my cheat sheet. Paul Sheehan was the 243rd um, cricketer to play for Australia, so I'll avoid any temptation to talk about Olivia Newton-John. Uh, Matthew Pryor took 243 catches for England at test level, which oh, is... Yeah. Um, which is significant. That's also weirdly on my cheat sheet, which I now carry around with me uh, on the computer. But, you know, <laughs> just, just what a life I lead. From your wallet <laughs> yeah, exactly. to peruse on the train. Um, Malto so, milk. So, We've got options. So Malto, I'm going to go with um, with Virat Kohli and, and Adam is going to go with Will Pukowski. Uh Mickey Lewis <laughs> has, has joined up. I don't know if it's the Mickey Lewis, but I hope it is. <laughs> um, 
taking uh, all of us are scratching the ball in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. <laughs> Mickey Lewis has come through with 226, and I did have okay. a look to see if it was related to Mick Lewis, but I couldn't find any um, relation to the former Victorian fast bowler um, who I was thinking it might have been the number of runs he conceded in one-day cricket, but that was 391 runs in seven one-dayers right. at well, 6.87 per over. Well, he might have nearly conceded 226 in the 438 game. I think that was yeah. The- that 110, was, uh, I reckon it was. 110. Or 113, maybe. Well, Freddie took 226 test wickets. And this has come up before. This isn't the first time we've had 226. Uh, so it could be Flintoffy. Uh, but I yeah. I sort of feel like it wouldn't be... What's the name of the uh, the patron here? Sorry, Jeff, I missed the name on the way through. Mickey Lewis. Oh, it's Mickey Lewis. Sorry, I, I, yeah. I, I thought we were just going on a tangent there. Mickey, Right, so... Uh, I, look, the name doesn't jump out, so in other words, I, I can't quite... Sometimes when I get the name, I try and remember off Twitter where they fit in and do the country search and so forth, but that doesn't immediately leap out at me. So it could be Freddie Flintoff's wickets. It also could be a Brian Lara innings from memory, Jeff. Yeah, Adelaide 05, I think it was, BC yep. Lara, um, 226. That was, the, that was the, uh, the test where Dwayne Bravo took that brilliant caught and bowled off, off Shane Warne at the start of Bravo's international career when he was quite an excellent right. test all-rounder. Yeah, that's going back a long way. You, you don't you don't sort of think of Bravo as playing in that era, but, no, no. but there he was. Um, or the other option is that it's Gordon Greenwich's highest test score, 226. Ah, right, right, right. So, well, that's not a bad one. Where was that at? That where, could, when did Greenwich make two two six against Australia? Uh, no, England. Yes, it was. Was it at Law? Was it at yeah. the Oval? No, I think he. I think he made. I think he made his double against England in eighty eight. I just can't remember which Test match it was. I think it yeah. came up as it happens. I think it's written about um, in. Was Robin that Smith's. was the, it? Was the one on one leg? Wasn't it? Yeah, it comes up in Robin Smith's book. Uh, he talks about right. um, uh, Desmond Haynes and Gordon Greenwich, uh, different parts of it. So uh, that's um, I, I don't remember exactly, but um, I, that that could easily be it. So two twenty six. Thanks so much for that, Mickey Lewis. And the last one for today, Oliver Cawley, who has come through with two fifty two. Now two fifty two is not a score that anyone has made in Test cricket, but it's mm. not the lowest score because that's two twenty nine. Yep. I think 252 might be the second lowest, so I'd, that's probably not it, but um, you know that's a, a factoid nonetheless. There's not a huge amount that jumped out at me for 252, I've got to say, as I was consulting my notes. So it's either a first-class number, that is to say a first-class tally of runs, a top score or something like that. Not seeing anything come up. Like that though. Oh, actually, well, okay. Well, here's one bit quirky, but maybe it. Uh, when India played Afghanistan in the Asia Cup final last year, they had mm. a tie with scores at two five two. So that that oh, yeah. could be it. It could be an Afghanistan ultra. The only thing that I could find that was really really niche on my Bannerman spreadsheet was <laughs> that um, that you've got the descending list of Bannerman percentages, you know, the percentage of an innings made by uh, an individual batsman. Um, Graham Gooch has got a fairly famous one, which is, is he 10th, 11th on that list? Mm-hmm. And he made 154 not out out yep. of 252 when England played the West oh. Indies, at least. So oh, well, look, that, 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 could easily, 
No, no, I think that could be it. I think that could be it. If it's if it's from an England correspondent, well, I mean, the Gooch innings was uh, was rated as the greatest of all time uh, by the stats boffins at Crick Info uh, before mm. the Casal Pereira innings, of course, and maybe even the Ben Stokes right. that, that Leeds could have overtaken it. But yeah, Gooch in '91 against the West Indies, his one five four is uh, is a is a big deal in a, an important series for English cricket. So it could mm. be two five two. It could be someone that wanted to reference Gooch but wanted to be more generous as a patron and wanted to give us um, two bucks fifty two. And in which case, that would be a very lovely way to have done it. Well, that may be it. Oliver Cawley, only you know and only you can let us know. You can get in touch, of course. If we've done your nerd pledge, if we've done you wrong, um, you can drop us a message and let us know what the deal is. And if you want to play a nerd pledge, go to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash the final word and set us a task to see what we can do with it. So a quick break, quick breather, then we'll come back and talk to Rob Smythe about his book with Robin Smith. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And before we go to our chat with Rob Smythe, uh, a conversation about our new friends at Future Talent. Uh, Jeff, uh, Future Talent uh, are a company which makes fantastic sports cards, uh, which uh, they've been doing for the last 10 years in Melbourne and throughout Australia and indeed throughout the world. Uh, their website, futuretalent.com.au, if you can jump on there. We've got a great special going at the moment. Uh, we'll come to that in a sec. Uh, what I wanted to say about them initially, though, is that they've made some very, very nice football cards of you and I, which um, I don't know if you've had a chance to check out the design yet, Jeff, but they'll be with us at the live show on Monday. I have not seen the design because um, it, it, it hasn't been forwarded to me. But given the raw material they had to work with, which was like whatever we could scrape out of the bottom of our collective Dropbox accounts and <laughs> um, try to find something that might be vaguely suitable and not too incriminating, um, if they've managed to do anything with that, then they've worked wonders. So I'm already impressed. They found our bio somewhere. I'm not quite sure how they did that, but they're, they're, they're quite flattering on the back and on the front. Uh, I, I had the good sense to have a photo taken of me um, with an old cricket bat and a nice baggy green on last year when I was playing a game at some castle in England and that, that's featuring on mine. There's the, the nice caricatures that uh, were made of us a couple of years ago that are on there too. So um, we can see in the space of a couple of days sending in those photos what a great job they've done. In the case of Jeff and I, they've made them in the old-fashioned 70s-style footy card way, which you'd remember growing up or maybe you've seen them in, um, in memorabilia shops and so on, which gives a sense of the kind of depth and breadth you can get when you work with future talent you just give them uh, the, the raw materials and, and they can turn around something that's really quite magnificent as we said last week on the show Jeff I mean as far as trophies and presentations and, and the way in which we recognize sporting achievement often it's it's the best player or the best couple of players um, that, that get the awards but this is an opportunity for your clubs to, to recognize everybody on the team uh, as well as uh, Bucks Knights uh, work Christmas dues colleagues it's, it's got a they're, they're very experienced in in making up any any number of different combinations and and they're great people and they're doing a fantastic job at the moment future talent dot com that I use their, their website and, and we've got a 15% deal going with them by that I mean you get 15% off if you go on the website and pump in final word cricket or the final word both uh, codes will work uh, that's the way to get your cards made up and and, and get a, a bit of a bonus for having uh, found them via the final word yeah well particularly if you've got uh, any 
particular classic moments with anyone on your team, um, you know, something that, that sums them up, then you can use that as the moment on their card and um, make it the moment that you remember them by. Ah, oh, the season of 2019-20. <laughs> what a season it was when you're looking back in 2063 when the, uh, the, the rising sea levels are lapping around mid-thigh and the rest of the world is on fire. You'll be able to remember the good times you had back when the earth was young. And I'll tell you what, they, they, you go back and look at old sports cards and remember we were in Tasmania a couple of years ago, Jeff. I'm going to make a confession here to, to one of our, our listeners, Alex Johnson, who we stayed with in Tasmania in, in 2016. Indeed, you crashed his car when we were down there, if memory serves me correctly. I did, yeah. Uh, yep. But in the console of that car... I, I Very get, slowly and going backwards. Yeah, but, that's um, right. Yeah. It wasn't like a, a hoonish accident. It was just one of those uh, things. The, but, yeah, after, after six months of driving completely event-free across the US on the wrong side of the road, by myself for long haul drives every day um, backed out of a driveway in Australia and <laughs> took the front off the car so AJ had some old cricket cards in his console from the mid 90s the 94-95 collection and I just picked them up thinking oh I'll I'll, um, I'll, I'll take a few photos of them, scan them in and, and, and see how we go. And I found them the other day when I was cleaning out my, um, the, some, a room in my house in London. I'm like, I must return to that. Some absolute corkers. And it's a reminder of how valuable cr- cricket and football cards have been to us throughout our lifetimes. And, um, you know, I, I know that these days the, the signature, if you like, the autograph has been devalued, but, but the photograph hasn't. So this is your chance to, to put your photo on a card. Uh, it's great for fundraisers, great for club awareness as far as using them as your business card um, if you want to kind of pump out the brand uh, around your local area of course this is the time of year where footy clubs are trying to recruit new players and that kind of thing and cricket clubs as well as we lead into Christmas presentation nights and all the rest they're a great company they're a local company they've been uh, wonderful supporters of the final word they're going to be there at the live show uh, on Monday as well Jeff so if you want to get hold of our cards if you're really really keen on the final word you'll have the opportunity to pick up the Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins footy cards because uh, they'll be there as well I think yours is in uh, in the Geelong hoops and mine's in the Brown and Gold Stripes we might have to do a whole set with every guest we've ever had on the final word do the um, do the full deck that way and issue those <laughs> special collectors ones you know have you have you got I'll, I'll trade you I'll, uh, I'll trade you two Natalie Germanos for an Ishigua <laughs> Um, and then see how we go. I'll trade you a so, David Warner for an Ian Chapel. I'll trade you a, a, a Jared Waitley for an Isha Guha. I like this. This has got some legs. I think, yeah. in fact, that's what we will do. I think we, as we work through uh, with uh, with future talent over the next couple of months, that's a wonderful idea in terms of um, uh, giving you something to remind yourselves of the interviews we've done on the show over the last couple of years. Yeah, I suspect we might run into um, intellectual property licensing rights if we try to distribute those. But, um, but, but if they're for personal for personal use only, what do you mean, officer? <laughs> this entire stash of David Warner football cards is for personal use only. <laughs> Just from your personal collection. Under new laws um, in at least 13 US states, you're allowed to have stashes of David Warner football cards for personal use only. Um, just don't send them interstate. So, yeah, 15% off if you chuck in the final word as your code on the website. Um, go and check it out and let's hear from Rob Smythe. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and we're really happy to have on the show this week uh, a man who we have worked with an awful lot, Jeff, uh, at The Guardian. Uh, we, of course, do a lot of the over-by-over blogging, and the man who is the, the doyen, the, uh, the, the master of the craft, 
is Rob Smythe, a guy who we both read a lot of before we worked with. And um, we're not going to talk about the OBO necessarily today, although it might come up. We, we, we mostly wanted to get him on the show uh, to talk about the really wonderful book uh, that he wrote uh, with Robin Smith, the judge. It's Robin Smith's uh, autobiography. It's a warts and all account of his upbringing, career, um, post-career malaise and comeback, really, uh, after having gone through a pretty rough time with his mental health and addiction and so on, uh, themes which we've talked about on the show before. So uh, without further ado, uh, Rob Smythe, welcome to The Final Word. Thanks for having me on. Rob, perhaps just as a framing device, if you can just kind of explain to people who might be listening to The Final Word today but don't have much of a background or memory of Robin Smith, some of our younger listeners, of course, his career uh, at international level ended back in in 1995. what sort of player was Robin and uh, what sort of mark did he leave on you as a young bloke growing up watching him play? Um, I mean, he's, he's remembered as being one of the best and possibly the most courageous player of fast bowling of his generation. He um, he was always taking on, particularly against the West Indies, had a great record against them. Um, he had this almost demented courage to the point where he would basically he would try to put him bat on with a broken cheekbone or whatever. Um, had no, he, I mean, there's the old cliche about um, anyone who says they're not afraid of fast bowling is a liar, but I genuinely don't think he is. And it was quite interesting trying to explore that. I mean, even Angus Fraser, she said that when he retired, he wrote it in the Independent that basically about that that the only person I believe when they say they enjoy fast bowling is Robin Smith. Um, but he wasn't. I mean, he he was often he, he had this lovely kind of flexibility that enabled him to avoid bounces. But he was also he was brilliant at counter punching. I mean, he had the most ferocious square cut you will ever see. Even even to modernise, it's quite kind of awesome the sheer power and speed of it. And he was just a really good player for a long time. Particularly the '89 Ashes, he was kind of England's only hope. Really, that was his first full series. He scored I think 550 runs, winning. And but for him and Rain, it would have been six nil. Never mind four nil. Um, and then for two or three years, he was England's most dependable player, along with Graham Gooch. Um, and then he, he's kind of, I mean, he's often seen he had a career of two halves. First half, primarily gets pace building, brilliant. Second half, the kind of mystery spin revival, and he struggled. And that's true up to a point. He kind of grew up on hard, bouncy pitches, played with hard hands. Shane Warne got in his head. But then he was actually coming kind of back closer to his best when England left him out for the final time and had a really good year. Um, so that has never really left him I think um, and for me I, funnily enough the, genuinely this isn't I'm not kind of making this the first test I watched properly was his test day beautiful fourth test in 88 um, I'm not sure why but anyway so he was kind of there from the start and England was I don't know why I kept coming back for more because England lost that series 4-0 they then lost 4-0 to Australia and the next tour was the West Indies away who hadn't been beaten at home and I think they lost one test at home in a decade never mind a series um, so I don't know why I kept coming back for more, but I did, and he was kind of always there the first few years. Um, but the other reason I really grew up liking him, I got my brother got me for Christmas, I think it was in 92, he did a book with John Crace, the Guardian writer, called Quest for Number One, and it was all about the psychology of sport. Um, and I was just fascinated by partly the focus, because that was so unusual in those days, but also the honesty. He was so honest about how difficult he found things at times. Um and at the time, I mean, I would have been 16 then, and you think all sportsmen are just kind of bulletproof, really, particularly someone like him, who was such looked like such an alpha male. And I was just fascinated that he went through things like normal people, and then as I grew older, kind of, you realise how complicated 
not necessarily mental health, but just the mind is really. So I, I was always intrigued by that as well. And I read that book a few times, really enjoyed it. I mean, it, now it's probably stuff that's fairly commonplace, but back then it really was quite, it was certainly a revelation to me anyway. So I was interested on two levels. One, he was kind of an authentic hero, kind of alpha male who stood up to the West Indies. But also I was quite interested in the fact that it was clearly more depth to him than that. And what? And I suppose the fact that your name's Rob Smythe and he's Robin Smith <laughs> meant that there was a there was a natural as a kid uh, a, a gravitation towards him. I I note you say that the first Test match you witnessed in the flesh was Robin's debut, which was the Test that Chris Cowdery led England mm. in as well. Am I right in saying? So it's a bit you of are, a, yes. a, a, a strange <laughs> Test match for for I guess a, a range of reasons, but a few firsts in there. Um, so I mean, that, so that that's Robin the the, the cricketer, um, but um, it's it's not that common really for a cricket. Um, to come out and write a book the, the better part of a, of a quarter of a century later. Um, was this something that you and he had been talking about before or, or discussing or you've been pitching to him? Like Usually if you see a player release a, an account of their cricketing life, it, it comes maybe three or four years after they've retired or something like that. But this is quite a long gap. It is, yeah. Well, I, he'd had approaches apparently. And I was quite flattered. He, I didn't realise this till the end. But he told me towards the end it had quite a few approaches at various times. And he only decided to do it because, well, so I basically, I it was 2015 and I saw him on Sky Sports program, Pace Like Fire. And I'd always just had it in my mind how much I liked his book. And I thought, and his book only went up to halfway into his career. So I thought it might be really interesting to try and do a full autobiography because it would then explore his, the kind of harder part of his England career as well. I knew nothing at that stage of his personal problems at all. I just, I'd interviewed him once in 2003, just over the phone, never met him. But I got in touch. Yeah, basically, I got hold of an email address and he was kind of he, he was slow to reply at first. And he sort of said the right things, but I sensed he wasn't that interested. Um, and then I said a full kind of pitch. And I think then that was the turning point because he saw then that, well, as he said, that I kind of understood him as a cricketer. Obviously, at that stage, I didn't know him as a bloke at all, really. Um, but I think there was enough detail and enough kind of um, insight into his character now, obviously, I was winging it up to a point because I'd never met him. This was based on what I'd seen. But, um, and I think that was when it kind of, then we started to have, then he, I think he, it seemed more real then, but also I think he thought that I understood him and it wasn't just, um, I don't know, it wasn't just a case of approaching anyone. I mean, I'd, ne I'd never approached anyone else to do an autobiography. I just thought it'd be interesting with him. The other thing is that his girlfriend, Karen, was a big help because she always encourages him to, kind of step out of his comfort zone and do things and I think she kept nagging him a bit as well saying it'll be really good for you um, and she saw it more from the point of view of catharsis I think particularly with all he's been through since his retirement well, of course I knew nothing about this um, but then uh, over time he said to tell me a few things uh, so we could modify the pitch and kind of make it more about his whole life never mind just his career uh, so that's how it started really but it took quite a while the first I think the first time I emailed him was kind of October 2015 and we didn't get started properly for about two years after that um so yeah it took a while but um yeah it just slowly became more real and <clears throat> kind of obviously for me like incredibly exciting Rob I'm fascinated by the process of collaborative writing you know being generally fairly territorial about um, <laughs> my, my own area when I'm writing 
Tell us about the process of trying to write a book with someone. You, you live in the Orkney Islands in the UK. <laughs> he lives in Perth. Uh, presumably yeah. you're doing most of this via email, which is also the, the entirety of uh, you know the relationship that Adam and I have had with you over the years has been via email. I still <laughs> yeah. don't know if you're real because we're, we're doing this interview yeah. online. So you, this could still be an elaborate catfishing project. But <laughs> how, how, how did you manage to write a book with him uh, in a long-distance relationship format? Well, I, I have no social skills. This is why I do everything in email. But, um, so the first thing I did was go over to Perth. Obviously, I went twice, but we thought, yeah, the first thing to do was go over for a couple of weeks. Um, or By then, it had already been signed. So if we hadn't got on, we were in all kinds of shit. But, um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so we did that and just spent a week just chatting, really, and just kind of going through stuff. Then after that, we did regular FaceTime, like an hour around lunchtime, my time, evening his. And that was it really. And then, but, but there were kind of, and then I went back about nine months later towards the end, but there were, I mean, you're right. The, the cricket stuff was quite easy because I could often, um, not fill the gaps, but I could, I knew exactly where to kind of lead the conversation, you know, cause I had quite a good memory of his career. I retain all kinds of useless information. The personal stuff was a challenge. Um, because he wasn't always comfortable, certainly not early on, talking about it, which is fair enough, you know, he didn't know me from Adam. So what helped massively was he was his girlfriend, he was, <laughs> yeah, really comfortable talking to her about it. So often what would, one thing we did that helped is that he would talk to her, she would make notes, write it up, send it to me, and then I would kind of incorporate it. Now, I know it was quite unorthodox, but it just, it worked really, um, because he was able to talk about certain things with her in a kind of depth that he couldn't with me at first. Towards the end, he could. Um, and it was a lot easier, but um, so that became really useful. I mean, uh, in a way, it wasn't ideal because you've got about well, you've got three different voices going to one, but but I think it worked in the end, and it just made it much more. It made it more comfortable for him as well because it's I can imagine it's really not easy revisiting stuff like that yeah I mean well I guess that the, the thing that people often say about um, autobiographies when they've been written with someone else is that it, it, it's how you master the voice of the subject dictates whether the project sinks or swims I mean there's uh, there's one prominent example and I won't I won't say who by because it, it, it'll be um, it'll, it, it wouldn't be it would be unbecoming but there was one passage in a book I was reading a couple of years ago when it was clearly not written by the subject it was clearly um, written by the, the author and that I think diminished from the text whereas with this um, I mean there's several reasons why we wanted to talk to you about this book because a lot of cricket books come out this year and obviously we read them all we read a lot of them and we enjoy a lot of them but um, the, the reason this jumped out was that it does dovetail with a lot of the, the mental health uh themes and discussions that we've had on this program with uh, James Neesham, Glenn Maxwell, Kate Cross. Um, there'll be others I can't remember off the top of my head, but just this year alone, we keep coming back to it time and time again. So when the extracts came out and some quite graphic um, detail uh, in the extracts about, um, like, let's say for what it is, Robin's uh, considering suicide quite seriously uh, when he was at his lowest point uh, around the start of this decade when he relocated to Perth and, and things weren't going well at all uh, for him privately. Um, that uh, it, it feels like him because we, by the time you get to that stage of the book, we're, I guess, three quarters of the way into it and we've spent such a lot of time getting to know Robin and this incredibly, uh, sort of the way he presents it anyway, idyllic childhood in Durban, the sort of privilege he was able to benefit from in the way he was able to develop his game with his father and his brother. I mean, even down to Florence, the housekeeper. Like, I feel like I know Florence, the housekeeper, from reading about her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Through, like, she's a wonderful character yeah. in this book. Uh, and 
and uh, and the way how, how I guess passionately uh, that he seems to want to uh, reflect on everyone in his life, um, and I think you capture that really well. But um, I guess uh, to sort of bring the conversation to some of those uh, tougher parts, uh, the book's called The Judge because that was his nickname, um, owing to the fact that his hair um, looks like a, a judge's wig, which has been you know discussed for uh, in many in many places before. But um, he talks constantly. You return to this theme of the judge versus Robin Smith, the judge uh, that um, that stereotype of him as the batsman that you talked about before, and then Robin Smith being the complete polar opposite of that, being a very sensitive, very anxious uh, kind of person on a, on a personal level, uh, and that uh, conflict between the two. Uh, and did you sort of expect that that's where you were going to land with him? Did you have any sense that the judge and Robin Smith were two very different characters? I did, but only in a cricket sense. Um, I, so I knew mainly from reading that book with John Crace and from also from the interview I did with him when he retired, I knew all about kind of his professional insecurities, but I didn't know the extent to which it kind of would spread into his personal life. Um, just a quick thing on timing, actually. You're, you're right about Mark's, um, about being a recurring theme, and I think the existence of books by people like Mark Triscothic and Graham Fowler were another reason why he was happy to do it now. I think before then, I don't think he would have ever been comfortable being, not the first, but you know what I mean. I think, the, and particularly Graham Fowler, because he knew him really well and absolutely loves him. So I think that made him slightly more comfortable with the idea. And the the, the voice thing, I think, is a really interesting point as well. I am, um, we spoke about it early on, and I agree, there are some books, like Andre Agassi's book, I think, is like that. It's a kind of, by all accounts, a masterpiece, but it's, it's a kind of, it's obviously a collaboration rather than just in his voice. So we decided early on that he kind of didn't want to do that. And I just kept telling myself, it's not your book. It's not your book. Because there are some things, you know, for example, he is incredibly mawkish. And he'd say that himself, bless him. Um, and there are some parts of the book that are really, they are cheesy. And I wouldn't, you know, if I was writing it myself, I wouldn't do it. But it's not my book. It's his book. And he was happy with that. And that's fine. Um, and the, the personality thing, I think it more it slowly emerged. Um, because it wasn't a case of him sitting down and just telling me telling me everything in one sitting because we were so far away and because I didn't meet him until we'd probably been talking for about four months when I met him. So it was, I was almost like slowly, not, I don't think it was deliberate, but just when he was comfortable kind of drip feeding information. Um, and then so I slowly kind of built up a sense of just how, I suppose how he, I'm not living a lie, but just the extent of his split personalities. And that's what I found fascinating. And it, I still feel like I don't completely understand him and I'm certain he doesn't completely understand himself, but I do, I think I can have a greater awareness of why certain things happened. Um, he talks a lot about his adrenaline addiction and it's not something I really understand, um, but I do see exactly how that influenced his career and his life um, in good and bad ways and also how that kind of, that kind of fueled the judge side of his character. But it is interesting for someone to be that. I think I think a lot of people have, you know, um, both those elements within them. But I think with him, they are so extreme. I, I don't know someone who can be, who can basically have their face demolished by Ian Bishop and want to bat on and not feel a thing and then cry, cry at the notebook. I don't know. To me, they would normally be... I don't have a problem with it either, but I just, like, I, I could probably cry at the notebook at a push. I could certainly cry at a few films, but I wouldn't be able to take... 94 miles an hour for me and Bishop in my face and want to carry on so just and also in the context of the way our understanding of masculinity is developing and changing I just find it really interesting 
in that context as well. One of the things that stood out to me in the book was how specific he is about mental illness and the ways it manifests because it seems like a lot of the time around sport now we, we have a lot of pretty superficial conversations about it and it's developed its own cliched language of people saying oh, I just wanted to start a conversation about this or whatever it might be and, and athletes might allude to things they'll sort of say oh I've had some dark times or whatever it might be but they don't actually get into the the granular detail of what that means and it, I think you know having had my own experiences with it that's one of the very few things that can actually get through to people who are suffering from extreme depression or extreme anxiety or whatever it might be is having symptoms described to them in a really specific way so that they can see that that it mirrors their own experience um that that thing of feeling like you're the only person in the world going through what you're going through at that moment is um it's really difficult to get out of that headspace and to have someone say specifically what's going on with them and one of the things he talks about is that feeling that he is useless he's worthless um he's damaging to the lives of everyone he cares about he's he's only causing misery to people and that therefore um you know he's alone because he's hated you know people who are contacting him don't actually know that he's a terrible person and therefore they shouldn't want to be friends with him you know so so all of his friends are either um, deluded or they don't really like him and and those are such pervasive parts of deep depression that that are so broad across so many people who suffer from it yeah i think that's an excellent point i, I i've got a really vivid memory of reading the the footballer stan collymore's book in around 2004 and he wrote something about depression about how um how on certain days, even something like brushing his teeth felt too great a task. And I, I could completely relate to that. I've had problems with depression most of my life. And it was that was such a really interesting and vivid example. Um, so I agree with you. And, and with Robin, I think a lot of it ties in with just shame, really. Now, whether that shame is merited a lot of the time, I don't think it is. Some of the time, clearly, some of the things he did, I think, will haunt him, um, even though he's in a much better kind of place right now. But, yeah, I think... Um, I. I completely agree specific examples even just down to the kind of i mean I, I thought he was really good the way he described the the kind of the problem of dri- drinking to get him through today just take care of today just get through today tomorrow we'll be fine i'll start fresh tomorrow and the cycle just goes on and then the kind of the the anguish builds up until his head until he can't take any more basically and it's, it must be the most horrible situation uh, to feel like you've got, I mean, to, to be that desperate, to feel like you've got nobody, you're that dependent, you're not easy. I mean, he was in a re- really bad place. And sometimes I think about kind of how close he must have been to just picking up a newspaper one day and reading Robin Smith, the former cricketer, was found dead. I mean, it's frightening, really. And we know, obviously, that this is a huge issue in cricket. Um, but it, I suppose, I, I wouldn't say the extent of his struggle shocked me, only because I kind of became aware of them more slowly. So sometimes I'm kind of tried to remember when I was writing a book that a lot of people, I mean, it was slightly known because Mark Nicholas wrote about it in his book, but a lot of people would pick it up and read it for the first time, not knowing, they would just remember the judge, fearless cricketer, retired in 2003 or whatever. Um, so kind of tried to make the preamble or the prologue really powerful, which is something he wanted to do as well, um, to realise that how you get, how someone who seems so happy and seems to have everything and seems to be bulletproof could get such a low point and be hanging on to life, basically. Well, I mean, the, the, I mean, the, the 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 very tragic but brilliant uh, by his own hand, the David Frith yes. uh, yes. series of uh, 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 
terrible um, stories he tells in that book about cricketers that have committed suicide, the disproportionate number of cricketers that have ended their own lives. And I sort of, mm. w- when reading reading the Robin's book, um, was thinking about that quite a lot, about the alcoholism which was clearly rampant in cricket. I mean, I know the way that it's explained in the book is that it was just part of the culture of cricket, but by any rational definition, he was drinking way too much as a cricketer but he had the outlet to um, deal with it the next day where he would go to the nets with his father, feed the bowling machine, the obsessive machine-like way that he developed as a cricketer. He had a process that he went through and, and, and getting on the lash, you know, most nights, whether it was with his teammates or out on the pool or whatever it was he was doing. And he, you know, goes into great detail about his infidelities as well and shows a lot of contrition uh, there and the way he discusses his relationship with his wife, first wife, Kathy's quite heart-wrenching the idea that he didn't know what it was to be in love until he was in his 50s i mean this is hard stuff to read but you know the extent to which he had the outlet of still being the judge when he needed to wake up in the morning he could be the judge but when you when you when you're the former england cricketer or the former hampshire captain and suddenly that's taken away from you it all kind of makes sense it makes sense that taking away that stimulus which was almost the counterbalance that he was going to be a high risk former player and whether there should have been greater infrastructure in place at the time to have realised that that he's the kind of character, knowing what we know about former cricketers, such an individualistic game, such an obsessive sport, that he may have had a fair bit of trouble when it was all over in, in the early Yeah, 2000s. in hindsight, there were so many signs, weren't there? Um, the extent to which he depended on kind of drink and socialising, the fact he was quite easily led... Um, not in a bad way, he just, you know, he was quite, he's always, because of his upbringing, I think he was always quite respectful of senior players in the dressing room. Um, the fact that he had this rampant adrenaline addiction, I think that was a real issue as well. Um, I don't know if everyone gets that, but most people talk about missing the dressing room, and he certainly did that, but I think he also missed the um, the, the physical side of playing cricket. Uh, and on top of the fact that he, things were great at home, and then a few, couple of businesses he tried didn't work, Um yeah, I mean, there just wasn't any support them because I mean, we know nobody spoke about it then. I would say the PCA were great with him in 2011 when he had a, a lot of problems um, and they they arranged some counselling for him, things like that. But yeah, back in the early 2000s, there was just nothing there, was there? I mean, I'm trying to think of, were there any examples in cricket of people speaking about mental health, really, before Marcus Truscothic had... I can't think of Well, it. probably not. I mean, Steve Waugh said himself in, in, in the newspaper today, there, there's some really interesting comments from, from him about the fact that what Glenn Maxwell has done this week, no one would have possibly done when he played. I was talking to, yeah, Mike, no I was talking to Mike Hussey about it yesterday, who I guess he's, what, 10 years younger than Steve Waugh, roughly thereabouts, and he said even in his career... It would have been unheard of for mm. someone to have taken the steps that Maxwell's taken this week. Smith's a generation back again, and, you know, it was just seen through that yeah. very no, narrow prism so of, it. yeah, you're, you're weak. Well, you mentioned that specifically in the book, Rob, where, where he mentions um, to the coach the possibility of having a sports psychologist <laughs> yeah. to help the players, and he's basically told if you need a sports psychologist, you shouldn't be playing for England. No, if you need a fucking psychiatrist. <laughs> didn't, yeah. even, didn't even know the difference between the two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I find yeah. it quite interesting. I mean, a lot of um, Robin's in- interest in the mind comes from his brother, who it just seems like he was so far ahead of his time. Um, by all accounts, a really limited player, but has an incredible first-class record. Something like 40, average 46, I think. The same as Gordon Greenwich, essentially, for Hampshire. And yet most people kind of, they openly said he can't bat. So it's really interesting. The, the, I think the slight difference is that he mastered it a lot better than Robin did. I think sometimes I wonder whether Robin's awareness is actually a bad thing. 
because he couldn't quite master it, so he became more aware of his certain insecurities. Having said that, I read, I found quite an interesting article early in his career, I think 85, so he'd only been in England a short time, he would have been 21, and even then he's talking about how insecure he is, so maybe it was just inherent. Um, I don't know. Um, the, the Hussey thing's interesting, just an aside, there was a documentary this summer in England about the 05 Ashes, and they interviewed pretty much all the England team, apart from Andrew Flintoff, I think, and everyone just spoke about how, basically how they were just lying, uh, putting on a front that summer. They were going through all sorts of torment mentally about personally, about their form, whether they were good enough. But they all managed to suppress it and take part. And it, to the time, it looked like England was a swaggering, confident team, you know. So I find it fascinating. It was just this big murder, really. No one spoke about it at all. And now that we are, it's a really good thing. But also I think it's left a lot of people of Robin's generation slightly confused about about masculinity, both about now, but also about what they experienced back then. Because he has a huge fondness for it, as as most people do for their youth. But also, I think there's, a, there's such a kind of difference between the person they were then and both the person they are now, but also the person they would be now when they're 25 now. I think I think it's left a lot of people quite confused about what kind of what it means, means to be a man now. But I think we can also overstate the, um, the, the difference in the pace of change because it's not actually that marked. You know, there are a few examples, but they're still massive outliers. The, the majority of men in professional sports uh, are still following the same kind of mindset and, and still repressing that insecurity and all of the rest of it. And maybe that's a, a necessary part of achieving at a really elite level. Maybe you have to be able to do that, even though it is extremely unhealthy and even though so many athletes suffer a cost when they eventually finish whatever their sport is. Yeah, it's a fair point, I suppose. We're still talking about, what, half a percent or one percent of people actually talk about it. I wonder if there are more conversations in the dressing room than there would have been. I obviously have no idea. You see Captain, someone like Owen Morgan is quite kind of, seems like quite, an, has a lot of empathy. You wonder if people will talk to him. I, I really don't know. I mean, but I, I found him quite interesting after the World Cup because you could see he was shattered mentally. Absolutely shattered. I thought he wouldn't carry on, actually. I thought that would that would be enough. And he's seems like a very tough man. It must have taken its all on him. I don't know. Uh, you wonder, like, he spoke, it was a nice bit, he spoke about having a chat with Joss Butler the day before the final and they were just walking around Lords talking about it. And I wonder, they seem to get rid of I wonder if two people like that, for example, would talk about it a bit more. But you're right, probably not to the extent that needs to be done for it to be useful. And also, as you said earlier about giving specific examples, I think that's really important because you're right. It's hard to relate to just a kind of general concept, really. Um but if the more specific it is, and even if you can only partially relate to something, I do, do think it makes it a lot easier to understand. I think it was also, you could empathise with what he's saying because he goes into some depth to say that he hasn't suffered from tr- depression in, in the in the traditional sense. By that, I mean he describes it as situational depression. I think that a lot of people can really appreciate that. That is, they may not have the sort of chemical imbalance, which means that they return to have problems time and time again, but there have been really acute moments in their lives where they've been under an enormous amount of pressure or other things have, have gone wrong and, and they've lost it completely. And that seems to be where he falls on that side of it. So that's another way I think that it, it's, it's a really worthwhile thing for people to, to read because, you know, you might go through your life not feeling as though you suffer from depression and suddenly you're fucked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you don't, and, you, and, you, and you don't know why. There's no sort of precedent for it. And with him, I mean, actually, 
going through it. Maybe he he wants to press before. I mean, the way that he talks about sleep is quite interesting that he needed to basically be absolutely exhausted and, you know, having probably been at the pub for several hours before he could make himself sleep. Otherwise, he would have a fair bit of trouble. Um, he wanted to hit the pe- hit the pillow, and maybe that is a symptom of, of, of uh, some depressive tendencies, which he never had diagnosed at the time. But, but generally speaking, the idea that, um, you know, this is just a guy who, um, who was, you know, deeply committed to his craft, deeply committed to living at 110% at all times, and it all kind of caught up with him spectacularly when he was in Perth. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I didn't know much about situational depression. Um, I, I've always hated the idea you're either depressed or you're not. You know, it's clearly a lot more complicated than that. But I didn't, I wasn't that familiar with the idea of a change of circumstances like his could trigger something quite so severe. And I'm sure that applies in a lot of cases. And I, I, I worry that we're still at a stage where that's seen as some people would say, well, that's not depression. That's just a bad time or whatever. When palpably it is, you know, there was a bit of... Um, and I know it's slightly different, but when Jonathan Trott went home from the Ashes tour, there was a lot of language used saying, well, he didn't, he wasn't mentally ill, he's just burnt out, whatever. It's, it's, there's clearly an almighty crossover between them. And I don't know, I, it still feels like there's so much to learn. I mean, I, it still feels like a lot of people, you, you either like, almost like you've got a broken leg, you know, you're either depressed or you're not. It's just, it's not the case. I, I probably from knowing him and from what he said, it does sound like he just did have a situation. I mean, he does still have, issues with anxiety as well but the really severe depression he had was um due to a kind of change in circumstances and mainly a loss of identity as well and that's that i suspect is something that a hell of a lot of people experience as you say at various times in their life sometimes they won't even know why um i'd be interested to know i mean I, whether he was whether we're, i asked him a few times were there any kind of red flags during your career and he couldn't really think of any beyond the obvious that you know, he was living life so fast. It was going to be a. He was going to hit the wall eventually, but um, he couldn't think of anything specific. Now that might just be that. That's one problem of doing a book so far after someone's retired. Um, a few times he would say he couldn't remember. He, well, even talking about cricket, you know. So I would have to kind of point him and say, "Yeah, but what about this 44 you scored at Edgbaston or whatever?" Um, so maybe he just doesn't remember specific examples. But I, but whatever he experienced during his career, it's quite clear that it became much more severe after he retired, just built up till overall. That's the other thing you hear about these periods in people's lives when they're rough. And you think, oh, that must be awful. But it doesn't you sometimes forget that with him, for example, it's pretty much a decade. It was building up to the point where he almost took his own life. Um, a decade waking up every day at first, not knowing what's wrong with you and um, trying everything to fix it. and It's not changing and it's just getting steadily worse. It just must be awful. Yeah, I mean, the language around mental illness is pretty nebulous and pretty slippery because the concepts are hard to pin down and you can have, you know, people can endure periods of intense grief or or misery that are situational that aren't necessarily depression or they can have uh, grief or or misery trigger episodes of depression that then subside or or they can be much more inclined to return to it in a clinical sort of way. So I suppose that in some ways the definitions are only useful to the individuals to try to, um, you know, sort out in their own minds what their condition is and, and how to treat it. But we we don't have the sophistication in in being able to diagnose those things. It's really just diagnosed through behaviour. But but it's but um, it's, it's good that people are much more tolerant now. I, mean, I I've noticed a huge difference um, just from my personal experience. When when I because I I've had problems with depression since I was a teenager basically. And when I first started working, 
I hated it. I would never have to mention it. I would hate having to mention it if I had a day off or whatever. You were made to feel guilty about it. One editor called me a, what was it, a, was it a nut job or, a, or something like that when I wasn't at the desk anyway. And now it's like, this was a long time ago. It's a million times better now. And it's got to the point now where even, like, it doesn't actually affect me too much anymore, it, not in terms of interrupting work, but when it does, I'm quite happy to say, just like, I'm struggling rather than just make up some excuse. I had so many migraines in the 2000s, it was ridiculous. I've never had a migraine in my life. But uh, but it's nice to not have to say that now. So, yeah, things are improving. It's like everything. It, it would be nice if it would improve quicker, but at, at least it's actually, at least something tangible is happening. As we sort of weave our way to the end of the conversation, Rob, I think the thing that stood out to me in this book, another thing that stood out to me in this book was that a lot of cricketers' biographies, or autobiographies rather, that I've read over the years, there's a lot of lining people up and score settling. Um, and perhaps with the exception of Raymond Illingworth, um, which feels thoroughly justified uh, when you read the text and the way that Illingworth conducted himself. Even him, he, he, I think there's a bit at the back end of the book where he says that, oh, he's probably a really nice guy, uh, or something like that. There is a bit earlier in the book where he, where Robin Smith resiles from earlier more strident comments he's made about Fletcher and about Illingworth um, and where he'd hopped into them even harder and said that he probably wasn't justified in what he yeah, said. Yeah, so, th- so there's that going on, but, I, but I, I guess with the exception of that, there is just so much love in this book. There, I mean, the way that he talks about, the, the really tender way he talks about people like Malcolm Marshall who, you know, even players that, you know, the, the, who, who he had an adversarial relationship with on the field, Merv Hughes, Waka Yunus, and the way that he wants to kind of clarify, I don't know, but yeah, I love them. And I think, and he, yeah. And, and it, but there is, but I think that, you know the, the volume of people who included Robin. I mean, the, the fact that he was best man at five separate weddings, for example, that stood out to me. Um, the way in which others have described him, you know, Mark Nicholas, obviously in the forward, but in other places too, Shane Warne and others as the most popular person in cricket. Um, the number of people that loved him and the amount of love he had to give in return, like. Yeah, I, I had this sort of very brief fleeting moment with him in the summer where I kind of felt that um, felt that tender side of him, which was in the um, in the commentary box at Southampton during the England West Indies uh, World Cup game. He got ferried in to um, you know promote the book and, and so on. I'd only read the extracts at that point; I hadn't read the the book properly. So we ended up basically just commentating the cricket, which was really fun. Uh, and at one point, Joe Root um, played that. You know that shot he plays when he gets on the balls of his seat and punches just through extra cover, kind of. It's it's probably my favourite shot in cricket at the moment when Root's at, at the peak of his powers. And looking at Robin, I like I just turned at him and like the smile on his face, it was just an awesome moment. It was like it made my day to think that, you know, obviously with Robin it was the square cut, but like you could see that his his palpable love for the game and the fact that he's still coaching young and old cricketers now to this day like that that still prevails even though a lot of the book is about mental health like it's kind of a a love affair between robin and cricketers and cricket the the sport the game and the people around it which has been the the defining thing of his life when everything else is you know went to shit cricket was still there and and obviously you know how long he was a dedicated professional 25 years in professional ranks like it's it's a lovely story about the sport yeah and it's quite nice that he fell back in love with cricket because he did fall out of love I think he became, by his own admission, slightly bitter, certainly when he was dropped by England. I think that really hurt him because he adored playing for England. But again, partly because he loved playing in big games. I mean, his big game record is exceptional, He, um, which made it even harder that he was left out of the World Cup final. Uh, because when he played, even for just for Hampshire, I think he played three three or four, basically played three three major finals, man the match in two, and the other one he played the cameo that got him in his first England call-up. 
But yeah, you're right. He is he's generally a very optimistic soul. I mean, Fletcher Lillingworth, I think he was massively frustrated about the fact he was pensioned off in his eyes and certainly in mine a bit early. And the second half of his career became more difficult because he loved playing under Mickey Stewart, who kind of pushed all the right buttons. Basically, he just needed the carrot all the time. It just worked for him. Different people need different things. But um, yeah, you know, he's a very optimistic soul. He always sees the good in people, sometimes to his detriment. I mean, there were a couple of bits in the book where he would rather, he told me to be economical with the truth to make him look bad rather than tell the truth to make him look good. That's the kind of person he is rather than, yeah, I know. Um, and, it, and I, the one time I lost my temper with him was on FaceTime and I felt really bad after because um, he doesn't like confrontation. And I said, this is ridiculous. You're making yourself look bad. But anyway, and it's not even true. But no, he does. But I think that, that does make it slightly hard for him sometimes. I think he gets slightly confused, not only by um, when other people stitch him up or do, but also when he then does things like his infidelity and that clearly tormented him. Um, but I can completely relate to why people, he's so popular. I was quite intrigued by that at first, actually. He was obviously a nice guy, but I wondered why everyone loved him so much. And I kind of get it now. He's just a very gentle, vulnerable, generous soul. Um, and I care about him enormously. And it's quite nice to still keep in touch with him. Um, and, um, yeah, he, he really, I mean, it's difficult. Like, his infidelity, there's no kind of dressing up. It was completely wrong. He knows that. Um, and he, he can't really defend that. But but uh, he is generally such a kind of kind person, really. Um, oh, just about his England career, just very quickly. That it, there's a really... I, I would So basically, he, everyone says first half of the career really good, average 50, second half, average 36. Now, that's true. But if you take it, he basically... 92 to 94 was when everything kind of got on top of him. He'd be living too fast. Then he had, was dropped for the Ashes Tour, had the winter off, came back, and he had a brilliant year against the West Indies in South Africa. Now, everyone cited the fact he only averaged 39 in those series, but they were low-scoring matches against two good pace attacks. I think no England player averaged more in the games that he played. And I just it's annoying because he was playing... I mean, he wasn't the same kind of dasher he was, had been before, but he played some... It'd been like, I think he was top scoring six, six of his last... 13 test innings I mean I, I don't think you should be dropping someone who is that productive now obviously England you can't consider this when you drop someone but that had a profound impact on his life and it, you could argue in many ways it took him 15 years to get over it really maybe even 20 um, that should, can't be a consideration I know but it's just really sad that something like that happened um, at a time when he was playing pretty well uh, top scoring a match in his last game felt like he'd really recovered and kind of had a shoulder operation, was just kind of, his fitness was better and so on. Um, I just feel that's a really sad part of the story because no one's particularly at fault, you know, they did what they thought was right. But yeah, I just, I, that always, I find that quite haunting to think back to the, the kind of steady impact it had on his life and his mental health to the point where 15 years later, um, he was at rock bottom. But he's doing a lot better now. Um, which makes me very Do you happy. think it would have made a difference, though, if he'd squeezed another year or two out? Would no, it, it have changed? I, well, I think I, I think possibly... I, I think he wouldn't have known when to go, but I think it would have been easier if he'd been, like, 36, 37. So, for example, him and Alex Stewart were dropped at the same time. Stewart got back in a test later because Nick Knight broke a finger, played for another seven years, scored, I think, 5,000 more runs. Stewart's actually slightly older than Smith. Um end up playing till he's 40 so I, I think it, he would have struggled whenever it happened but I think that the sense of rejection 
and also not being told why. So he was he still to this day doesn't know whether it was his socialising and the fact that you know the game was moving on because everyone basically the whole that generation had gone. He was the last last man standing at the bar really. Uh, he doesn't know whether it was that or whether it was a perception that he couldn't play spin. Uh, and they were playing Pakistan and India that summer, and Australia were kind of looming, or whether it was just a misreading of his form, which was far better than I think people perceive in that year. I don't know. So I think that the, the sense of rejection really hurt him more than anything. Again, it's called The Judge, Robin Smith's autobiography. I've got to say, I've read a lot of these books over the years. This is a wonderful, wonderful book. I'm so glad that you're able to get the sort of time you needed to do it with him I suppose and, and, and the, the, the way you were able to, to capture his voice and do it so eloquently and, and tell such an important story uh, I think a lot of people are very grateful for it being out there and, uh, and congratulations and thank you for having a chat with us today about it on the final word Thanks very much I really appreciate that Thank you And well done on your hat trick Jeff by the way Hi my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff it's the final word. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon after our illuminating conversation with Rob Smythe. As I said at the end there, it's uh, it's such a kind of important uh, conversation that we're having now. And it was great to have it with someone like Rob, who indeed was so open about his own challenges as well as uh, that of his subject, Robin Smith, who I've got to say, having read that book and really enjoyed uh, going through it uh, before we spoke to Rob through the summer, um, he's a compelling character, Robin Smith. And I, I hope that... He's someone who remains close to the game and keeps this keeps this dialogue going with with cricketers because as we've learnt this week it, it's a it's it's a serious thing and and it may not be the case that more cricketers are suffering from uh, uh, challenges at the moment but certainly more are reporting it which will mean there'll be more care required. The key thing with those stories is that um, just because someone can get their condition under control for a period of time doesn't mean it's all it's all good it's all done and sorted you know the. Um, uh, the struggle continues and um, you've got to hope that people managing those sort of depressive conditions don't slip back into uh, the the worst spots where they have been so that's the hope that we'll have for him for the future but um, there's uh, an example there for other people that you're definitely not alone if that's what you're going through. Well, that's probably enough for us from this week. Uh, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, the final word. Our usual round of thank yous. Bad Producer Productions, Jay Mueller uh, and his team. Thank you so much for making this possible. Future Talent, what a great uh, what a great place for us to be working with now, Jeff. We're so good to have them on board. Likewise, Kookaburra Cricket and Sat Phone Shop, who will be represented in our live shows, uh, one of which is going to be on Monday and the other one on the 27th. Uh, iTunes, those who've reviewed and rated, that does an enormous amount of makes a massive difference I say it every week but I'll keep saying it the more you do that the more people that hear the show the better we all are and Jeff our patron subscribers those who are playing Nerd Pledge with us at the moment it's so much fun the, the the champions of the genre, the ones who make the whole show possible, thank you so much if you're a supporter on there or if you have been in the past or if you're thinking about doing it in the future um, come to the live show if you're in Melbourne it's going to be so much fun Dastardly Dirk Nanis um, coming off the long run the uh, the left arm speedster, the gasoline man. He's <laughs> one of my favourite people in cricket to talk to because he's always got the, the slightly offbeat view of whatever the subject is. And, and then, so he's on November eighteenth. Jason Gillespie and Jim Maxwell on 
November the 27th. Come along. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week from, well, I think we'll, we'll, we'll have just reached Brisbane or possibly we'll be in Melbourne or, or somewhere else. Wherever it is, we'll be there on the final word. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Till then, bye.